Amen. If you are, if you have your copy of Scripture, we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14 this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Hebrews 12, 12 through 14. I might want to actually turn to Hebrews. I'm currently in the book of Mark. There we go. <laughs> Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that as we look at finishing well, that you will speak to us. That you'll speak to us about finishing this race of faith that you'll speak to us about peace and you'll speak to us about endurance and speak to us about holiness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I transport you to October 20th, 1968. We're in Mexico City at the Olympic Stadium. The last of the exhausted marathon runners were being carried to first aid stations. Indeed, 18 of the 75 athletes would not finish the course that was 2,300 meters above sea level. One hour before the final runner entered the stadium, Mamal Woldi of Ethiopia, he had crossed the finish line with a decisive victory. As darkness fell, the crowd began to filter out of the stadium. Those sitting near the marathon gates heard the sound of sirens and police whistles, and those that were remaining all turned their eyes towards the gate. A lone figure appeared and embarked on the final 800 meters of his journey. He wore the colors of Tanzania. His name was John Stephen Aquari. He was the last man to finish the race. His leg was bandaged up and bloodied, he was severely injured in a fall to the point that he was advised not to continue the race. He had dislocated his knee and bruised his shoulders. He grimaced with every step as he hobbled around the track. The spectators in the stands rose and applauded him. You would think that he was the winner of the race, not the last place finisher. After he had crossed the finish line, a quarry walked off the field in pain. He had no chance of winning a medal he was injured, but he completed the race. Someone asked him, why? Why did you keep on running? To which Aquari responded, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. So I wanna to talk to you this morning about finishing well, because it means everything. Paul said to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is contemplating his impending death, and he 
takes time to evaluate his life and his ministry. And look what he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's not about winning and losing. It is about fighting and finishing and keeping. Listen, we are so wired to win. If we don't win, we think we have failed. We make statues of winners, not of losers. But Paul says of the greatest Christian, who is possibly the greatest Christian to ever live, did not make it about winning and losing. He made it about finishing well. For Paul, he was a winner because he endured in the faith. Remember, the author of Hebrews was gravely concerned that some of these people were about to drop out of the race altogether, mainly because they're struggling under God's discipline. That is why verse 12 says, Therefore, you see, he is pointing back to what he had just said about God's discipline and how it stems from his love for his children and that it's designed for our good and that we should share in his holiness, that we would, that we would have this peaceful fruit of righteousness. It goes further than that as well because it points back to the need to look to Jesus who is our greatest example. Remember verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The author is encouraging his readers and us to finish well. And as we run this Christian marathon, we can't drop out of the race. We race to the end. When we grow weary, we are injured and we're hurting and we're depressed and we don't think that there's any way that we can possibly go on. He says, finish the race well with peace and holiness. So this section actually goes through verse 17. The sermon would be too long if I covered through verse 17. So we will look at 15 through 17 next week when we look at finishing the race together. So today we're going to look at finish well with peace and holiness. First, we must finish the Christian race well. We must finish the Christian race well. Look at the language being employed here. He's speaking of these drooping hands and weak knees and making the feet straight. It's metaphorical language that was universally understood. It is a word picture to show us the Christian life can be exhausting, but it also shows us how to finish well. Now, I'm not a professional runner. I dabble in running. I know a little bit about running. I can tell you one of the telltale signs of a runner that's losing energy is when arms are drooping, hands are flopping, knees are wobbly. That means they're all out of energy. The prophet Isaiah encouraged his people who are stumbling in, des in despair by saying this, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. Let's notice some lessons from verses 12 and 13 concerning finishing the race well. First, all true believers will persevere. All true believers will persevere. One of the greatest truths of Scripture for all true believers is that those who God saves, He keeps. This is taught throughout the Scriptures. If God saves you, He keeps you. Philippians 1.6 and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 10, 27-30. And my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of, my, out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans 8, 29 and 30. And for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul continues on there in Romans to show that if God did not spare his own son, then nothing can separate us from his great love. It's a powerful truth that God gives to us, especially when we're weak and struggling. And though this is a wonderful doctrine, it is often misused and misapplied. This is how it gets misapplied. Well-meaning Christians and even pastors give assurance to those who have professed faith in Christ as Savior, but have zero evidence in their life that God has actually saved them and changed their hearts. So sometimes we hear it put this way. And I'm sure you've heard it because we're a good Baptist church. And we would say such a thing. Once saved, always saved. Right? We say that. Lots of people say that. And now that phrase is true. Once someone is saved, they are always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. However, it is possible to make a profession of faith and even show signs of a new life in Christ, but only have the seed that bears fruit with patience and not, not be grounded in your life and you are not genuinely saved. You just showed some evidence of salvation. We hear the stories all the time, right? Someone goes to camp and they make a profession of faith at a young age and for, the, for a while things are great. But then they get into their teenage years and they rebel and they show no interest in the things of God and they stop going to church. Perhaps they start to use drugs or maybe abuse alcohol. Maybe they become promiscuous and they resist any attempt to talk to them about their spiritual condition. They don't want to talk about it. Is this person truly saved? Some people say, yeah. Is there any evidence that God has changed their hearts? No. So it would be a horrible mistake to deal with that person as if they are a Christian. Because they made a decision to accept Christ. Just because someone makes that decision is not necessarily the same thing as genuine conversion in which God changes the heart of the person. And so we can't or at least should not go around saying once saved, always saved to the person who has zero evidence in their life that they're actually saved. But that's how we abuse it. So someone has no evidence and we say, did you ever say this prayer? Yeah, I said that prayer. Well, once saved, always saved. You're good to go. No, we have to stop doing that. However, this doctrine is also misunderstood in this way. That people think that perseverance in faith is automatic. That there's no effort needed for those who are genuinely saved. This person thinks that if God saved me by his grace and promises to keep me by his grace, then I don't have to do anything to persevere in my faith. 
This thinking ignores the scriptures, including the scripture this morning and our text where we are encouraged to put in some effort into perseverance. Peter lists a bunch of qualities that we need to add to faith. And then he writes this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be, uh, be richly provided for you an entrance into eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 10, 11. Even though God has chosen us for salvation, we still have to put some effort into perseverance and godly living. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That takes work. And he chose the means for us to arrive at the goal. And that is that we would run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's not just going to automatically happen. It doesn't happen on its own. As a rule, believers will persevere, but they will do so with effort. We must finish the Christian race well, and all true believers persevere, but also perseverance means dealing with weariness and injuries in the race. Perseverance means dealing with weariness and injuries in the race, as we look at verses 12 and 13. It's very clear that walking through this Christian life means that we have some weariness. And we're going to have some injuries. In fact, verse 13 says that what is lame. The idea is that there are Christians who are lame. And I don't mean like lame, like when we say, oh man, you're lame. That's not what I mean. I mean, you're lame. You cannot do it. We do not know the cause of their Lameness. We just know that in the race, they have somehow become lame. Let me give you one cause of lameness. And that is when a Christian has not been properly fed. Now I want you to listen close because one thing I cannot stand is when someone leaves a church and they make this statement. They said, well, we just weren't being fed. And they use that as an excuse because so often that's not the truth. And I have said to people, well, feed yourself for crying out loud. However, it seems like the church today, instead of feeding people with meat, is instead dosing them with drugs. This feeling. They can't conquer their lameness because they have no framework. They're not being adequately fed. Sheep will never thrive on bad food. There are some really good Christians that have been terribly fed. The preaching that they have heard has been shallow or maybe even false doctrine. They have listened to preaching dealing with therapeutic deism or they have listened to preaching that talks more about improving your moral standard or they've heard preaching that speaks about your best life now and they have not heard preaching that challenges their faith and causes them to dig deep into the scriptures and brings conviction to their soul and that is filled with theological truth it is like they're in a desert but they don't want to leave their church or their pastor so they just keep feeding on bad food and they are lame they are lame christians that are everywhere who have never heard doctrine being preached who have no idea what the scripture really 
teaches. You could listen to 1,000 sermons from some preachers and still not know what they believe because they refuse to speak on doctrine or the essential truths of the gospel. And some people sit and listen and think, wow, that pastor is so deep. But there's nothing clear in what they're saying. They stir the mud. Have no clue what they believe. And they're so superficial that they don't touch on the truths of Scripture. And when people sit under that kind of ministry, they don't grow. They're lame. Here is the challenge. No matter how you arrived at being lame, whether it was through hardship or whether it is, is through uh, not being properly fed, whatever it is, the question is this. Will you drop out or will you deal with the problem and keep running? If you drop out, then you need to examine whether you're truly saved. True Christians finish the course. You may be limping, you may be hurting, you may be bloodied, but true Christians finish the course. They see the finish line, they look to Jesus, they don't quit because they're tired and hurting. Listen, in a real marathon race, you deal with both mental and physical hindrances. If you're running and you allow your mind to drift into areas that say you can't do it and you allow yourself to be discouraged, you will lose the motivation to keep going. Physically, you may get blisters or guess what? Your joints sometimes start to hurt and you experience pain like you've not experienced before. And you may even have to stop and rest to deal with your issues in order to finish the race, but you keep going. Let me also just say that some of the problem that we have as far as spiritual battles in our life are physiological problems. Some people have sicknesses or injuries that make them more prone to depression and discouragement or even anger because of their bowel chemistry or some issues in their background if that's you you will need to fight even harder for the joy that's promised to all who walk by the spirit the thrust of this text is that we would deal with weariness so that we're not put out of the race our injuries must be bound up and so the community of believers competes with the course without loss listen to god's word from proverbs let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. The point is that we don't need to be looking off course. Don't let your eyes wander off to some shortcut that looks tempting. Just be obedient. Stay on the course that God has set for you. So that the limb that feels lame will not be put out of joint, but healed. Spiritual healing comes to those who persevere in their obedience, which means we must constantly deal with our attitude. We must be making sure that we set our eyes on the Lord and, and the finish line, which is eternal life with Him. We must finish the race well. All true believers will persevere, which means dealing with weakness and injuries. And thirdly, we must help one another run the race in order to persevere. We must help one another run the race 
in order to persevere. Listen closely. The Christian life is not a solo adventure. The wording of the exhortation is applied to both the individual and corporately. Individually, we must take care and persevere in the race. But notice what he does not say. He does not say, lift your own drooping hands and strengthen your own weak knees. In fact, in the original, this is how it reads, your slackened hands and your weakened knees strengthen. Whether it's yours or someone else's, remember he's writing this to a group of people. He's not writing to an individual. Additionally, we need to make straight paths for the feet. You may need to come alongside of your fellow Christian and help them in the race. The idea, make straight paths for your feet, means to establish a way of travel. It comes from, from, a, uh, comes from a wheel track. The idea that we are leaving tracks that some would even see and some would even say that we are leaving ruts for others to follow. We are to make sure that our life stays on course so that someone else does not uh, does not follow us off course and be disqualified from the race. We're not in this race alone. Nor are we in this race in competition against one another. We're all on the same team. We encourage one another by our words and our example to finish the race. When we see someone struggling, we help them. When their limbs are weak, we cheer them. We cheer their hearts. When they're doubting, we must proclaim the faithfulness of God to them. When someone is burdened with sin, we must tell them that it's for sinners that Christ died. When someone is down in the dumps, we must tell them that God never casts out his own. When someone is distracted, we must tell them that God brings back his own. Listen, we must lift others' hands. We must strengthen others' needs. We must walk the path with them. We must help the lame out of their situation. We must be like Barnabas. And encourage you'll be of a great value in church life if you are an encourage you encourager if you sympathize with others if you show compassion to those who need some compassion whatever you do make sure that your teaching is the truth make sure that you're giving your fellow Christians the truth not some watered down word of God but the truth of God's word that is the only way to make the path straight so that leads to the next point what is the course that we're to run? And where does this course go? Verses 14 through 17 reveal that to us. We will deal with verses 15 through 17 next week and deal with verse 14 today. We must strive for peace and holiness to stay on course and finish the race well. We must strive for peace and holiness to stay on course and finish the race well. Laid out on the course for us is some things that we're to be striving for. And in verse 14, we see two great things. In fact, there are two great commandments given by Jesus. Peace with everyone, which is love your neighbor as yourself, and holiness, which is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he brought out these two themes as well. Just in reverse, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Striving for peace is directly linked to striving for holiness, and it makes it clear that we are not to strive for peace at any cost. 
We sometimes hear that being touted, right? Peace at all costs. That's not the case. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Notice he said, if possible. The reality is that we live in a fallen world. Which means there are times it is not possible to be at peace with everyone. Let's be real. There are times that people cling to their bitterness and their hatred and there's nothing you can do about it. Especially if you've done all you can do to be reconciled. Or there are times that in order to be at peace you would have to compromise obedience to God. Whether morally or doctrinally. You can't sacrifice holiness for peace. You, you can compromise, can't compromise obedience for the sake of peace. However, that does not mean that you refuse to strive for peace. We are to strive for peace with everyone. So let's talk about that first. Strive for peace with everyone. Do you do that? I just want to clear something up right here at the beginning. Everyone actually means everyone. That's what it means. You see, some people think, and I've even heard it said, I have to strive for peace with those in the church. No. We strive for peace with those in the church and those outside the church. Even if they are persecuting you, we're still to strive for peace with them. I've heard well-meaning Christians say things like this. I don't, I don't have to be nice to others. Okay? And they think that somehow, I don't know where they get this from, that Scripture justifies them being rude or mean-spirited or treating other Christians in certain ways, or anyone else for that matter, like garbage. No Christian, you don't have that right. You don't have the right to be a jerk. I, I can't find that in the Bible. I, Christian, you have the right to be a jerk. I don't read that anywhere. It's not in there. I do read, we're supposed to strive for peace with everyone. That's your right. Your right is to strive for peace. Jesus told us to what? Love our enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You don't pretend like you have a right to be a jerk and mistreat others. I don't know how that idea has crept into the church. Are the words of Jesus easy to obey? No, they're not easy to obey. Are you kidding me? But they apply to everyone. They apply to wives who are verbally abused by their husbands. They apply to believers who have family members who make fun of them and ridicule them because of their faith. They apply to teens whose parents are godless and verbally abusive. They apply to Christians who work with people who hate their faith. They apply to Christians in, in how they treat one another. They apply to everyone. This is, in fact, sometimes the hardest place to apply this truth. Towards another Christian who's wronged you. Or at least you feel they've wronged you. Right? You know why it's hard? Because the world, we expect to act like the world. 
a bunch of heathens who only look at look out for themselves. When an un- unbeliever slanders you or talks bad about you or verbally abuses you or mistreats you, we think, well, that's what heathens do. That's how unbelievers act. However, when a Christian acts like a pagan, we're shocked because we don't expect them to act that way. We expect them to follow Christ, yet it happens all the time. All the time. And Satan uses this to destroy new and old believers alike. People in the church treating one another poorly and treating new believers poorly because others uh, causes others to drop out of the race. Let me pause for a moment and just say, if I'm describing you, if you treat others poorly, I have some sound biblical advice. If you reflect on your life and you sit here and you, you say, do I treat others poorly? And you say, well, yeah, I, have, I do treat others poorly. In fact, I treat other Christians. I have some sound biblical advice for you, okay? Knock it off. If you're gossiping, if you are a gossip and you can't wait to tell this juicy piece of gossip that you know to someone else or post it on Facebook or blah, 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 stop it. If you're considering, if you're not considering others better than yourself, and you're not putting their desires ahead of your desires, you need a Christianity check. You need to check yourself. Because that is what being a Christian is all about. We should never want anyone to ever drop out of the race. But we should strive for peace with everyone. Strive is a strong Word, it means to go after with intent on catching what you're chasing. It is a concentrated effort. It will not just accidentally happen. When someone hurts you, the tendency is to do what? Somebody hurt me, I'm going to withdraw. And I'm going to put up a wall of protection around myself. So that other person can't hurt me again. And you distance yourself from the one who hurt you. And from those who are close to that person. And you avoid talking to them. Can you believe that stuff happens in churches? That happens with other people in your church that you put up a wall You see how that causes a problem in the church on both ends for the one who is hurt and the one who is doing the hurting. But the author says, strive for peace with everyone. It means you've got to strive for peace with that person. See, that's part of the problem in the church. We don't strive for peace with one another. We did. Oh, did you hear someone? Did you know that so and so did this? And uh, this is just a prayer request, Pastor. Just a prayer request. And then you give some juicy piece of gossip that nobody needs to know about. Strive for peace. This isn't the only place we're told to strive for peace. Romans chapter 14, Paul commands that we should pursue things that make for peace and the building up of one another. First Peter says that we must turn away from evil and do good. We must seek peace and pursue it. Second Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to flee from youthful lusts and, and, press, uh, and, righteous, and pursue righteousness, faith and love and peace. And those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I just want to ask you this morning, are you striving for peace? 
Or are you withdrawn, coddling your hurt feelings? Are you actually making some sort of effort to strive for peace with those who have hurt you? Or do you sit back and say, I will never talk to that person again. I don't want anything to do with that person. Are you striving for peace? Start with your immediate family. Husbands and wives, do you strive for peace with one another? When your spouse or has said or done something to hurt you, do you strive for peace? Parents and kids, do you try to clear up misunderstandings and words said in anger towards one another? Do you strive for peace? Sting that to those in the church. Do you actually go to those who have wronged you and seek to clear it up? By the way, we don't go with the attitude of I'm right and they're wrong and they're just a big fat jerk, but we go with humility. We ask them, did I cause offense? Tell them, I don't want anything to be between us. I want there to be peace. Can we get this cleared up? Let me be honest. This is not usually a pleasant thing to do. It's not pleasant to go to someone and say to them, hey, have I done something to cause a problem? I want there to be peace between us. I don't, I don't want there to be a hurt relationship. That is not pleasant to do. It is hard. That's what God has laid out for us to do. Be at peace with everyone. Are you willing to do it? Or are you just going to keep on holding on to your bitterness and your feelings and never have peace? Because that kind of garbage that says, I will not pursue peace with others in my church will only bring destruction to your life, and to the church. I personally would rather have someone get mad and leave the church because another person was striving for peace with them than they get mad and leave the church just because they never dealt with the issues and poisoned others. Not only do we strive for peace, but it says that we strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The word holiness means sanctification or Consecration. It's the idea of being set apart or having moral purity both inwardly and outwardly. It is a heart that is growing in conformity with God's standards of purity and holiness. Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that moral purity begins in the heart. He taught that adultery in God's sight was not just a physical act, but it was the lust of the heart. He did this with many other sins to show it's all on the heart level. If a person is not willing to judge their lust on the heart level and the thought level, and their whole body will be thrown into hell. This is exactly what this text is talking about when it says, without which no one will see the Lord. It means that if you are not growing in holiness, you will not go to heaven. And that's powerful. Let me be clear. This is not saying that you earn your way into heaven by being moral. Holiness does, does indeed exclude uh, immorality, but morality does not amount to holiness. Morality can clean the outside of the cup, 
while the inside of the cup is still filthy. In other words, morality can have the appearance of holiness, but a filthy heart full of wickedness. Holiness deals with the thoughts and the intents, the purpose, the aims, the objects and the motives. Morality skims the surface. Holiness pierces the heart. The moral person can be complete in their morality and lack holiness. That is why the Bible makes it clear that heaven is God's free gift to all that trust in Christ as Savior because your morals will not earn it. It does not mean that anyone will be perfectly holy in this life. There are some who teach that believers can achieve sinless perfection in this life. And while, sure, I suppose a believer could go a while without sin, the Bible makes it clear that we are to strive against indwelling sin as long as we are alive. Hebrews 12.4, Galatians 5.16, Romans 8.12 and 13. So, when, then what does this mean when it says, strive for holiness? What it means is that those who have hearts that have been regenerated by the grace of God will strive for holiness. They may sin. They may sin often, but they will not remain in sin. They hate it. They hate how sin makes them feel. And they confess it, and they turn away from it, and they fight against it with spiritual weapons provided to us by God, according to Ephesians chapter 6. They know their sin, sin is a weakness, and because of that, they find ways to build into their daily life safeguards to avoid sin. They go to the scripture, they renew their mind. They hide God's word in their heart so they might not sin against Him. They strive for holiness. It's a lifelong pursuit. And without it, no one will see the Lord. In other words, they won't get into heaven. Heaven is a place of absolute holiness. God would sooner extinguish heaven than see sin plunder it. God is holy. He's surrounded by his holy angels who cover their face and proclaim to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Every saint that enters heaven is perfectly holy, never to sin again. God will not have anything unholy enter his presence in heaven. So those who are not holy, who have not been renewed by the Spirit, who have not been regenerated by the Spirit, who have not been made to love what is good and hate what is evil, those who are not pursuing holiness will not enter the congregation of the righteous. In fact, you would be uncomfortable in such a holy place. And so everyone who's been rescued from sin and judgment by the cross of Christ wants to please the Lord who died for them and is actively pursuing holiness. Now some would say it's impossible. It's impossible. I've tried to pursue holiness. I gave it my all, but I could not succeed. It can't be done. And I would say you are absolutely right and you are absolutely wrong. You are right. It is of no use trying to pursue holiness in your own strength because holiness is not a thing that you can get. It's beyond you. You can no more make yourself holy than you can create the world. 
You can't do it. But that's not cause for despair, because Christ can. He can do it for you. And He can do it right now. Believe on Him. Trust Him that He suffered for your sins and He will come into your life and He will make you holy. Trust Him to save you and He will save you. No matter your past, you'll be saved from your sin. You'll be delivered from its practices. You'll be made a new creation in Christ Jesus. He is able to save you and make you holy, giving you a new heart that pursues holiness. Florence Chadwick was an American swimmer. She was known for her long distance open water swims. She won her first competition at the age of 10, but realized she liked open water swimming better than swimming in swimming pools. At the age of 10, she was the youngest person to ever swim across the mouth of the San Diego Bay. On October 12, 1950, at the age of 31, she crossed the English Channel from France to England in 13 hours, 20 minutes, breaking the then current woman's record held by American swimmer Gertrude Ederl. One year later, Chadwick crossed the English Channel again from England to France, this time in 16 hours and 22 minutes, thus making her the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions and setting a record for the England-France journey. She ultimately swam the channel four times. On July 4th, 1952, she attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. The challenge was not only the 26 miles, but the cold water and the possibility of sharks. She had two boats that flanked her to help her if need be after 15 hours in the water. A dense fog set in and she doubted whether she'd be able to make it. She swam another hour before finally she gave in. And as she sat in the boat, she found out that she was only a mile from her goal, a mile from the shore. She said, if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. If I could have seen the land, I might have made it. Dear Christian, you have a reward in heaven. When one day we will see the Lord face to face. We focus on heaven. By faith we look to Christ. By faith and in spite of all the difficulties of this course. You look to Christ. You will grow weary. You will have injuries. It will be hard. But I challenge you, like the author of Hebrews, don't give up. I challenge you, look around at other believers. See where they are faltering. See where they are growing weak. And don't run around and gossip about their weakness. But help them out. I challenge you that you will strive for peace and holiness before God this morning. You will do this. I ask you, 
Has this sermon described you? Is it a description of you? Do you strive for peace and holiness? Are you helping others out? Are you looking to heaven in the midst of the difficulties and the trials and the struggles, knowing that the reward will be far worth it? This morning, maybe you need prayer. Maybe this message has spoken to you somehow. Maybe as you reflect on your life this morning, you reflect on a life that is not pursuing peace with everyone. And maybe you need prayer. You can do that in your pew or you can come up here and pray on your own or I can pray with you if that's something that you want to speak about. I just want to challenge you that if the Lord has moved you to respond to this message, if you've felt something in your heart, I want to challenge you to respond this morning to what the Lord is doing in your life. I'll be standing right down front. If that's you, if you need to respond, I give you that opportunity. And if not, if you need to do that in your pew, you can do that in your pew. That's fine. But I want to give you the opportunity to respond this morning as we sing a song. Let's pray.